This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's accelerated degree programs. Our six and eight week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in data science. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Sarah Rigby, online assistant at BBC Science Focus magazine. Most laws of physics tell us what must happen. Throw a ball in the air and it will come back down. But physicist Chiara Marletto, a research fellow at the University of Oxford, says that laws like this only tell us part of the story. She believes that the rest lies in counterfactuals, things that could be. In her new book, The Science of Can and Can't, she explains how these counterfactual properties could solve many of science's biggest outstanding problems. First of all, could you please just give us a brief outline of what your book is about? Yes, so the book is about describing uh, a new mode of of explanation for physics, but not just physics, in fact, for science at large. And the key idea is to move away from the standard way in which uh, physics has described the universe um, so far, which is basically in terms of uh, laws of motions and trajectories of objects in space-time with initial conditions and so on, and use instead statements about what transformations are possible and what transformations are impossible and why as your fundamental building blocks. So that's the key idea in the book. And of course, the book is about also a number of other things. There is a bit of epistemology in it, so the way in which science uh, makes progress and how is it connected with the fact that it's good from time to time to switch to new modes of explanation because it allows us to 
incorporate more things in in the in the laws that we have in physics and in science in general. And it's also a bit about storytelling. So you touched on this a little bit um, about the idea of what can and can't happen. Um, so in the book, you talk about this in terms of an idea called counterfactuals. So could you just tell us a bit more about what a counterfactual is and why it, why it's different from any other quantity that we would normally use in physics? Most of the fundamental laws of physics that we currently have are uh, phrased in terms of factual statements about what happens to objects when you uh, set them in motion in a certain way. So, for example, you can describe how the you know ball moves in space with a given trajectory. Uh, Newton's laws are a good way to, to do that. However, there are other things you can say about the physical situation that are also important in physics. And for example, thermodynamics is an example of a traditional field of physics where these other statements are central. And these other statements are the things I call counterfactuals. And they are statements about what can or cannot be made to happen on a given object. And so a classic example is the conservation of energy, where we say that it is impossible to build a perpetual motion machine of the first kind. And uh, this is a machine that creates, let's say, energy out of no energy. Now, when we say that, we're not saying that this machine does not happen on a particular trajectory of, of, of the universe, let's say. That constraint in terms of what's impossible is much stronger than that because it says that it cannot happen at all, no matter what the initial conditions are and no matter what the laws of motions are. Uh, so in that sense, these counterfactuals are deeper and more general than laws of motion. And the idea that I'm proposing in the book is that there could be a much broader way of using them compared to just, say, thermodynamics or, say, information theory in a way to unlock a number of physical phenomena that are really based on counterfactuals rather than factual statements that currently physics can't quite deal with. Right. So what sort of problems in physics could be solved by using counterfactuals? So one key problem is the problem of incorporated entities that have so far regard, been regarded as, as, as emergent and approximative, macroscopic, and not really worthy in a way of being um, incorporated in physics. And one example of this is uh, information. So when you, when you think of what are the regularities that in the physical world that allow for uh, things that can process information to exist, then these regularities are really not about what happens to given systems when they are set in physical states of some kind, but they are about what you can do or cannot do with them. So the classic example, again, it's example of a bit. You know, if you want to try to explain why a given system can be used as a bit to encode information, it's not helpful to say uh, the bit is in a particular state at this time, zero or one, let's say. But what we have to stress is the fact that the bit can be put in either zero or one, and its state can be copied onto another bit when it's available. And you see these two statements are about possibilities and they're not about things that happen in a particular condition to, to the bit itself. So in that sense, the whole of this physics of information and the physics of computing devices is based on counterfactuals. And by switching to counterfactual, we can state exact laws about these things within physics. And then there's the physics of life, 
which is of course connected to this in the sense that uh, the physics of life is based on information, but there are additional features such as, for example, resilience, the ability of, of life to to survive and and um, perpetuate itself and so on. And then there's the physics of uh, thermodynamics, not just in the traditional sense of heat engines, but in in a, in a sense that that underlies both the heat engines as we as we know them traditionally, but also other machines that can include things like programmable machines that we call constructors that are generalizations of programmable computers and so on. So I think these are the three main lines of of inquiry that this approach can help with. And of course, in the long run, it could help also with understanding the mind, the way in which the mind works from a physics point of view. Um, In your book, you mention an analogy um, and an example of a counterfactual could be a a writer has a pad of paper that he only uses in an, an emergency or something like that. And the counterfactual is that the paper has the possibility of being written on, but it is not guaranteed one way or the other. Um, Could you give us some more sort of real world examples of what a counterfactual might be? Yes. So there are features of objects that that we use in everyday life that are counterfactual and they explain why these objects are out there. And so in a way, if you want to tell a story about these objects without mentioning counterfactuals, that's a good analogy to understand what physics is trying to do currently with this phenomenon I mentioned earlier, in the sense that you just will not be able to explain why why that particular object is there. So the piece of paper that you mentioned is an example. But of course, you can also think of of a lifeboat on on a kind of cruise ship. In this situation, the reason why there is such a boat there is the fact that there could be a shipwreck. And it actually could be that the, the, the ship in question never actually undergoes a shipwreck and everything is fine. And so the boat, the lifeboat is never used for the purpose it's there. If someone asks you, why is that boat there? It's no use to say, well, the boat is there and this is the current state of affairs of the boat in question in terms of its actual state. What you have to say is that the boat is there because it can be useful. It could be useful in case the shipwreck situation occurs. So that's a, that's a kind of a nice example that shows that if you're trying to tell a story about the boat, why it's there, without mentioning counterfactuals, you won't be able to tell the whole story. And another example that I can give is this one about the fact that you know, when, when, you, when you describe a computer program being run on a given, on a given computer, you, you know, you, there are different ways in which you can explain what's going on. So one way is to just list the sequence of states through which all the bits in the computers go as the program unfolds. So for example, let's say the program is to factorize a number. You know, you start with certain bits in a certain state and then you see what they evolve to, et cetera, et cetera. And it's going to be a string of zeros and ones uh, in an appropriate sequence. Now, this is a way of saying what's going on at a certain level of description and it's about what happens. But for you to understand that the computer is really factoring the number, say, 15, and not a different number, you have to consider what values could the bits have assumed, have taken, if you had inserted a different different input. So you have to consider all the possible other inputs of the computer, other than the ones that's currently factorizing, to understand that the computer is really running a program for factorization. 
And this is another example where you can you can understand how to describe, for example, the functionalities of a computer. You really need to contemplate not just the specific input that is currently um, being given to the computer, but also all the other possible inputs that it could be given. And finally, I give this example in the book about chess. One way to uh, you know to to explain why, for example, one gets to a situation like um, a stalemate is to notice that you know if you consider the current state of the board, you you can see that there are no legal moves that allow you to do uh, you know to to, to move uh, the, the king in a different place, let's say. But there is a deeper explanation for why that is, and this is really encoded in the possible and impossible transformations that you give to each of the pieces on the board. And that is the that is basically the essence of the rules of the game of chess. They are only really about possibility and impossibility. And ultimately, an explanation of a particular configuration like a stalemate or a draw is really reduced to statements about these counterfactuals that have to do with how the pieces could be moved or could not be moved, whether or not in that specific situation that can be moved in that way. There was something that you said in there that I think for me at least made it clearest about what the 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 real purpose of these counterfactuals is and you said um without the counterfactuals you can't tell the whole story in quantum physics we would often talk about probabilities we would talk about how a particle could be in one state or it could be in another state and we won't know unless we measure it is this the same sort of idea as counterfactuals or is it just a coincidence no it's not a coincidence and this is very very nice point you're making that the essence of quantum theory is counterfactual and that's one of the themes that powers the subfield of quantum theory which is called the quantum theory of computation so the main one of the main principles of quantum theory which is the heisenberg uncertainty principle is is basically counterfactual it's a statement about counterfactuals because it says that it is impossible to have a number of properties of a given object all in focus at the same time. So, you know, for example, momentum or velocity of an electron and position can be both measured, observed with the same accuracy at the same time. And this is a thing about what you cannot do with the system. So it's, it's, it's a counterfactual there for you. And a number of other phenomena that are important for quantum quantum theory are also about counterfactuals. Entanglement is one of them. And and um, it's very interesting that this wasn't quite clear at the start of the when the founding fathers of uh, quantum theory invented the theory. But then in the eighties and nineties, I think the the field of quantum information was was proposed, and one of the key ideas there was to say, well there are a set of core properties of quantum objects that are independent of their particular details. So it doesn't matter whether I'm looking at a photon or an electron or a neutron or something. Um, All of these objects have something in common, and it's the fact that they can be described as qubits. And the property, the key properties of qubits are counterfactuals. And I think this is a revelation because usually in physics, when when you see something that is in common, into a set of objects, there you have the possibility of finding a deeper regularity in nature. You, you have the possibility of finding a unifying law. And I think that's what quantum information has done for us. In a sense, it's allowed us to understand quantum theory in a deeper way. And if you look at quantum information, you will see that not by coincidence, 
most of its uh, central tenets are about counterfactuals in the sense that I said. So now can you tell us a bit about how this idea came about? Is this your theory or was someone working on it before you? So this is connected with what I said. So so I think David Deutsch, who is a a quantum computing pioneer, he he was one of the uh, people that proposed the idea of this universal quantum Turing machine, which is the next step beyond what Turing thought about, which was classical computers. Uh, So David, who works in Oxford and has been working on foundations of physics for quite a a while, he proposed this uh, philosophy of, of the you know, of the, of the science of Ken and Kant, if you like, the technical term for it is constructor theory. And I'll explain in a moment why it's called like that. Back then, I think I was a student uh, in, as a, you know, was wor- working on my PhD thesis in Oxford. And we started collaborating on this. And I thought that the promise of this approach was, was very, very, was great. And I set myself to actually applying it to a number of open problems in physics and I think together with David and later also with uh, other collaborators, I think we're now trying to put this approach to the test with actual open problems within physics, within information theory. And this is quite very exciting. And the reason why it's called constructor theory is because there is a, a sense in which the way in which David proposed it initially was precisely to make the quantum theory of computation more general than it is, to make it more general in the sense that it can uh, describe and apply not just to computing machines, but also to more general programmable machines that we call constructors. And we call them constructors because they, they are programmable machines that can perform not just computations, but any kind of transformation. And, and they, uh, the, the first person who introduced the idea of a constructor was von Neumann, John von Neumann, this uh, great mathematician and physicist, who was thinking about what was missing in Turing's universal computer for it to be equivalent to living systems. So to, for example, a cell that can self-reproduce. And specifically, if you think about it, a universal computer, even a classical one, like the one we are using at the moment, communicate, unfortunately, they cannot produce replicas of themselves. It's very inconvenient, kind of sad, but (laughs) we can program the computer to produce a copy of itself. And uh, so Phenomen noticed this, and then he said, well, there could be a more general class of machines that is allowed by the laws of physics, and, and I want to call them constructors. And just like there is a universal computer, there's also a universal constructor. And this universal constructor is a machine that can perform any task that is physically allowed, provided it is given the requisite knowledge, the requisite program, the, you know, relevant software, let's say. And now this, this machine is just um, you know, an idea that has been proposed at the time, uh, but in the way in which David thought of this theory initially was that it could, the science of Ken and Kant, is that it could also provide in the long run a, a theory underlying this new generation of machines to generalize, let's say, the quantum Turing machines that we have now. And this is one of the most ambitious goals of, of, of constructor theory. What areas of science are you most excited about constructive theory solving? Well, I think there are a number of different directions. So the closest to physics is, is, is this one that I was um, mentioning earlier. So we've learned with uh, quantum information that there's a way of going at the foundations of quantum theory at the very core of the theory by considering the counterfactuals that underlie it. And the hope is that 
it's possible to do a similar thing with using the sense of Ken and Kant to extract the very essence of the current most fundamental laws of motion that we have, which are quantum theory on the one hand and general relativity on the other hand, and that this procedure allows us to go at a deeper level of explanation where actually the two theories happen to be compatible. So there is this huge problem in physics that is being currently tackled in very many different ways by theoreticians around the world. And it's a problem of merging quantum theory with general relativity in a, uh, in a way that all the conceptual problems are solved. And it appears that on the, you know, on the surface, they look like two theories that are um, incompatible. But the hope is that by um, approaching the problem with this counterfactual uh, take, you could actually see a way of setting guidelines along which some of these proposals for quantum gravity can actually be strengthened and, and some of their problems, the conceptual problems also solved. So that's one direction that I find very promising. And the reason why I find it promising is that it's different from the standard way of going about this problem, which is usually the current way to address this problem is to say, well, I'm going to propose a specific theoretical new approach to, to quantum gravity. There are lots of them out there. But the approach we are talking about here isn't directed exactly to find a specific candidate for quantum gravity. It's more like providing a set of guidelines, a set of guiding principles that can help guessing such a candidate. So I think in this sense, it's a, it's a complementary approach and it works at a different level of explanation. And I think it's great that we have more tools to address this problem because being a very uh, hard problem, it's, it's very important to diversify our bets and uh, diversify our tools. So, so that's very, very promising in my view. And then there is the other problem that, that has to do with the physics of life. So there are all of these uh, phenomena that we usually consider as emergent and not really part of fundamental physics. So life is an example. Even thermodynamics is actually another example. It's, it's something that physicists would regard as pertaining to the macro world, you know, uh, steam engines um, and, and so on. They're really things that are microscopic, that exist at our scale. But when we go down to the microscopic details, uh, for example, the irrever irreversibility of the second law disappears. And um, it seems like the, the laws of thermodynamics are not really relevant for microscopic particles. So in a way, they're not really regarded as fundamental either. And then, of course, there are, there's, the, there's, a, there's a chapter of the mind. So, you know, how the mind works and what is it that when we are thinking and inventing new ideas, what is it that we are producing? So these three problems are somewhat all connected because they're all dealing with macroscopic objects that are usually cons considered as non-fundamental and therefore not really the subject of fundamental laws of physics. And with counterfactuals, the, the key thing that happens is that you can formulate laws that appear to be exact and scale independent about things that on the, on the face of it um, are usually considered as macroscopic and emergent. And so in this sense, so for example, to give, to give an example, we already have a working example with computers. Computers are objects that are really not considered as fundamental usually. But if you study the laws that rule the possible and impossible tasks that completely characterize computers and the physics of information, these laws are exact. These laws are actually fundamental. And it turns out that if you, for example, look at quantum theory through those laws, 
you can actually understand its 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 deepest uh, secrets. So in that sense, I'm expecting that um, the counterfactual approach has a very strong chance of capturing some of the regularities that underlie life, the way in which life develops, uh, the way in which life actually evolves and so on, in a way that it's, it's deeper and stronger than what's been done so far, for example, in biology. Uh, and it's closer to the, um, to the way in which physics actually formulates laws. So for example, it's, it, it could be leading to a number of universal laws of life that hold not just for life as we know it on this planet, for example, but anywhere in the universe. Uh, and likewise for the mind. So this is, of course, it's very far in the future, but that's also uh, a field where physics hasn't done enough, in my opinion. And that's partly because of this reason that we think that that kind of topic isn't really for, for physics, maybe. But I think we should really try harder and, and having more tools like the science of Canon Kant is really important. And I think it's specifically important and, and promising that we have these tools because they have this capacity of, of capturing regularities that, that otherwise with laws of motion you can't just um, capture in a, in a kind of uh, fundamental law. And finally, what do you hope people will take away from your book? I think that, you know, when, when I think of, of the way in which readers deal with my book, I... I'm really hoping that they have fun when they read it. So I think that's the main thing. I do uh, have a, a, you know, a, a hope of, of having conveyed this enthusiasm for physics and the fact that physics is really an open enterprise. So in a sense, that's one of the strong messages in the book that, uh, so I'm describing this new model of explanation. Hopefully there will be others. And I'm really hoping that you know, maybe young readers who, who read this book could think that they could in a few years maybe make a new contribution to physics, perhaps in this field, perhaps in a different field, but in, in a way that, that makes physics uh, an open-ended enterprise. And this is really important because I think, especially with uh, young um, students in school, sometimes it's not really emphasized enough that science and physics specifically is always evolving and, uh, you know, theories get overthrown and, you know, things that we thought worked really well, like Newton's laws actually turned out to be false and so on and so, so forth. And this is what makes physics exciting. Uh, so I think in that sense, I'm really hoping this, this idea can reach the readers. And at the same time, I, I'm hoping that the, the idea of combining physics and thinking about physics with some sort of intellectual delight or fun. That's also a thing that I'm hoping the readers will, will enjoy. Uh, usually maybe physics isn't, hasn't, you know, doesn't have a great reputation uh, in terms of being fun and delightful, but I think it, it really is. And I'm really hoping that this, uh, this also can, can get to my readers. And in general, I'm really hoping they will have fun with it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Science Focus podcast. That was physicist Chiara Marletto. Her book, The Science of Canon Kant, is out now. If you have five minutes to spare and want the chance to win £100, please fill out our survey to let us know what you think of the podcast. To take part, simply go to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y, forward slash science focus survey. The May issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. In this issue, we solve the mysteries of what happens to your brain when you're asleep. A scientist tells us how to bag the best deal on a summer holiday, and Dr. Michael Mosley explores whether eating fermented foods really does you any good. 
Of course, there's much more inside and on sciencefocus.com. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.